0: Thanks guys. Good morning. How are you? Great. <laughs> it's great to be with you this morning. I'm going to put this up here today because I'm a little bit more blind today than I was yesterday. It's really good to be here and it's lovely to spend some time into worship and to take the time to, um, to, to spend a weekend really reflecting deeply um, Allowing God to speak to our hearts and uh, also to our minds on, on discipleship and, and what it means to follow Him. Um, let me say just a quick prayer as we come uh, into this material. Loving God, I just thank you that you're with us. I thank you that you're not a God who is far away, but a God who is near by your Spirit moving even in this room today, in our hearts. Lord, I pray as I speak that that which is your gospel, that which is true, will permeate And that which isn't, won't. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. What I want to do this morning um, is I want to talk for a while um, about following Jesus uh, through imitation. Through imitation. The passage that we have today that I want us to reflect on, which I think should be up on the screen, comes from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, verse 1, Ephesians 5, verse 1, and it's a really interesting one. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me read that again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, imitate God. This is a really interesting idea. Paul's inviting us at this point to be like God. Now, we've just spent some time worshipping and proclaiming and heralding some wonderful attributes of God, a God who is faithful, a God who never gives up, a God who is there through the trials. And it's good and appropriate that we do that, we ascribe worth to God by describing those things and and proclaiming them and, and giving thanks for them. That's absolutely what we should be doing. But it's a really fascinating idea to come to the Scriptures and and for Paul to say, look, not God is amazing, you're not so amazing, just be thankful that you're forgiven. But for him to actually say, be imitators of God. Imitate God. Now, can we imitate God? How do we do that? That's what I want to talk about for a little while. What does it mean to imitate God? You know, in our life, we imitate lots of people. In fact, psychologists tell us that when we're young, so many of the things that we learn, we learn because we're imitating other people doing them. Uh, If you have an older brother or sister, then maybe you can remember a time when you would imitate um, aspects of what they did because you wanted to be like them, or perhaps if you have a younger brother or sister, you may have become a little bit frustrated about how they wouldn't do their own thing, but they would sort of mimic you wanting to do what you're doing all the time. It's actually fascinating. So much of what we learn, we learn through uh, imitating, mimicking uh, someone else. But there are other ways in which we imitate people. I remember growing up and I had a. I don't know if you, I had posters on just about every square inch of my bedroom wall. You might still have posters on your wall. I've got more paintings and pictures in my house at the moment. I've got a couple of posters, but when I was, when I was a teenager, I had, uh, like, like, there was almost, there was no white. It was just absolutely chock-a-block covered with John Bon Jovi, <laughs> Axel Rose. Do you know who Axel Rose is? Yeah. from? God. All right, amen, hallelujah, that's good. These are all good, godly men. Well, they wore tight jeans, let's put it that way. I had Michael Jackson. This is kind of the bad era Michael Jackson, right? So this is the album Bad, which I think is his best album. He was already white, but I think he was still male. You know what I mean? It was kind of an in-between period. A bit of a difficult time for Michael. Maybe that was a bit harsh. But anyway, it was, look, he looked cool. He was cool back then. He was totally cool, Michael Jackson, in, in 1988. So this is, look, every... every square inch of my bedroom wall was covered with people, and to be honest, if you looked really closely, you know, I, I kind of was dressing as much as I could afford to, do you know what I mean, a little bit like some of those guys slash Michael Jackson. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? In other words, I still, I love wearing tight jeans. I'm not wearing terribly tight jeans today, but I, look for, I do like to, and I, I really have to think back and go, you know what, I do believe it was the discipleship of John Bon Jovi who did that ministry. Now, Charlie, you had some tight jeans on last night, I saw. Are you a John Bon Jovi fan as well? It was just an accident. It... There, there are no accidents in the kingdom of God, this is God's work in your life. Your wife likes it, okay, that's well it's good to wear it if your wife likes it, I mean that's a whole other thing, but look, there was a relationship between, you know what I mean, the kind of person I wanted to dress like and the people that were on my wall. Now this might say, okay, that's fun because I was young and I was a teenager and all the rest of it, but let me tell you something that happened, you know, only very recently. I was at the hairdresser, right? I got this hairdresser I go to, a good guy called Attilio, and I go there, and, and we get on really, really well. He's German, and, um, and, and he sort of guides me in making sure my hair isn't a total disaster, which it has been for several years, but that's not John Bon Jovi's fault. But I was sitting there with Attilio, and Attilio goes, what are we going to do with your hair? And I said, look, I don't want anything special with my hair. Just make it so that it's really simple to do every day. You know, I just want to be able to do much. I don't want to put a lot of stuff in it. I don't want to have to style it. I don't want to have to do anything. I just want to cut it so it's kind of shaped that it's very simple, not too spectacular. Also, I think at the time I was still driving a little Vespa around. So I was putting a helmet on every day. So you can't have anything, kind of amazing hair then, wear a helmet then. You know what I mean? It doesn't work. You end up looking like Lockie Hogarth. So you've got to be careful. <laughs> so I was, so... I I said, I want something really simple, but I kind of want it stylish, you know what I mean? I don't want it, you know, just a little bit of stuff. And he says, okay, whose hair do you want? I said, well, I I want my hair, obviously. And he says, no, 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 let's play a little game. He says, if you could have anyone's hair, if you could look like anyone in the world, uh, who would it be? And I'm like, this is a little bit silly, but, you know, very quickly, a little bit too quickly, it came out, Morrissey. Now, I don't know if you guys... You've probably never heard of Morrissey. If I, boring bit in the talk a bit later on, you can Google Morrissey and have a look at a photo of him. But Morrissey is this guy, he's just, you know, sort of after my teenage years into the sort of young adult, he was just the coolest guy in my mind, Morrissey. He has fantastic hair, magnificent, the kind of hair you would expect in the kingdom of God, magnificent hair. And it's, it's, you go to heaven, and the people will have Morrissey's hair. He's a fantastic-looking guy. And so it just came out. I, I, if I could look like anyone, yeah, I'd look like Morrissey. Like, he's just the coolest guy ever. And he, he was in a band called The Smiths, and he did a lot of great solo albums. I love Morrissey. I've got to be honest with you. So he goes, oh, really? Morrissey? And I said, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not being silly. And he goes, all right, let's, let's... And so he looked it up, and he goes, yeah, all right, because Attilio sort of knows Morrissey. All right, that's the, let's, let's give you the Morrissey. And I'm like, all right. And I'm feeling a little bit silly, but it's like, okay, here I am, you know, in my mid-30s, make me look like Morrissey. So, he, um, he gave me the Morrissey, and at the end, I have to be honest, I don't look a lot like Morrissey, but my hair did. I was like, yeah, this is all right, all right. And so, it becomes like this joke with us now. Every time I go into the hairdresser, I say, Tilly, how are you going? He goes, let's give you the Morrissey again. I say, give me the Morrissey. And it's like our shorthand way of saying, you know, give me this particular haircut, and it works really well. A couple of months later, um, I was in uh, America, and uh, I was doing a bit of speaking, and in between, I, I went to New York City and was spending a few days in New York, and I was having a fantastic time, and I wanted to go down downtown in Greenwich Village and, um, and find this particular coffee shop where Bob Dylan and some others used to play back in the 60s, a place called The Bitter End, it's a totally legendary place, so it's all about two o'clock in the morning, And I'm walking down around Greenwich Village and downtown. I'm walking around going, where is the bitter end and so forth? And it's like, oh, there it is. And it's feeling legendary, like, wow, I'm finally coming here. I've wanted to come here all my life. This is totally cool. And I go in there and and it's 2 a.m. in the morning and I walk into the coffee shop and I go up and and I I say, hey, you know, can I have a drink? And there's people all around, all cool New Yorkers, you know, and so forth. And this girl turns around at the bar and she looks at me and she goes, oh, Oh, my God, you look so much like Morrissey. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> this may be the greatest moment of my life. We've done it. So, I get, so anyway, this, she has a boyfriend there and so forth. So, I said, can we get a photo together? Is that a little bit weird? And I tell her the whole story. And she goes, oh, that's hilarious. So, I get a photo with this girl in this, and it kind of looks a little bit seedy. So, I text it home to my wife. And so, my wife kind of, okay, so my husband's on the other side of the world and, ah, here's a picture of him, yes, late at night with a girl in a bar, that's great, <laughs> and she thinks I look like Morrissey, oh, great, well, then you yeah. probably should have sent an accountability partner with you on this trip. Anyway, so, <laughs> it, was, it just was this hilarious thing and I sent it to Otilio as well, I said, look, it finally worked. I got, I, someone said, and you know, it moved me deeply someone thought I looked like Morrissey. Now, what's going on there? Maybe a midlife crisis, I don't know, but there's something going on there, and I'll come back to that uh, in, in just a minute. Let me tell you another story. This is a story about um, me shopping for some jeans. Some of you may have heard this story before. I, I've used it a little bit because it was a really insightful time. Um, you, you know when you, you go shopping for jeans, and uh, tight jeans, Charlie, and you're If you go somewhere like David Jones, you've got the whole floor to yourself as a guy. You know what I mean? Like the girls have a floor and the guys have a floor to yourself. So you sort of, you go into the change rooms and it's just all guys and whatever. But then if you go somewhere like Just Jeans, everyone's in together. Not in the same change room together, but do you know what I mean? It's all change rooms and there's guys and girls and guys. And that's what happened. I was at Just Jeans and I grabbed a few jeans. Yeah, they look good. Bit tight. And then I take them into the change room and I'm in there and I'm trying on these jeans. And I can hear voices of these girls in the change room next to me. And of course, being girls, two voices. Because <laughs> guys are going into a change room on their own every time. But if it involves a little cubicle, girls go in pairs for some reason. I don't know why. Let's go to the toilet together. So anyway, they, there's these two girls. And there's obviously, I can hear from the conversation, one of the girls is trying on the jeans, and the other girl is kind of like, you know what I mean? Standing back, holding the jeans, being the sort of spotter person. And, and helping and giving her impression. And so there's this conversation going back and forward and back and forward. And one, the girl, she's trying them on, going, you know, mm, ah, mm, ah. there we go. And, you know, the other person's going, how do they feel? They goes, oh, yeah, no, they're all right. Oh, yeah. Oh, they look good. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Mm. Do you like the colour? Yeah. How do they look from back? Oh, yeah, no, good. Yeah, they're good. Oh, they're on sale. Oh, you know, one of these really deep conversations. And they're going back and forward and back forward. and then after a while there's a pause for a while, a bit silent. And this a sort of supporter girl, I think, says, says um, what's wrong? The other girl goes, um, yeah, I just don't know if they're me, you know? And the other girl goes, I know what you mean. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, me? Are these jeans Me? And so I'm looking at my jeans, going, um, "Are my jeans like me? <laughs> are they someone else's jeans? Like what? <laughs> I haven't paid for them yet. Are these jeans me?" And the other goes, oh, yeah, no, totally, that's right." So she's taking off her jeans. I'm thinking, "I've got to see these jeans." So I reached up and looked over. No, 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 I didn't. That's I'm making those better no, Just <laughs> that little bit's made up. I promise. Are these jeans? M- like me it's a really interesting question because there are a whole lot of questions you can ask that are legitimate when you're buying a pair of jeans right are they cheap enough are they on sale can I afford them that's fair enough question with jeans do they fit yeah well that makes sense you've got to have jeans that fit or they're going to fall down or be too tight are they good quality you know what I mean? Are they going to fall apart? Now, you and I know that, like, my dad used to go to Big W and he could buy a pair of jeans and they're going to last a nuclear war. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, no one, the jeans aren't going to, they're not going to fall apart and fray. This is not, you know, like medieval times. The, the jeans are going to hold together, but he'll pay 15 bucks for them. You and I, we're not going to do that. So, we, the quality, yeah, of course they're quality. Now, what else can you ask? Well, are they me? Now, what is that question? What is that question? It's a question about desire. It's a question about image. It's saying, not just do these jeans fit, are they comfortable, is it a nice colour, does it go with this top? It's another question, it's actually a deeper question. It's a question about, do these jeans help me look like the person I want to look like? Do they fit with the person that I'm trying to be? Do these jeans help me with the kind of image I'm going for? Actually, if you stop and think about it, it's a lot of pressure to put on some denim. Because it means that this girl has a picture in her head around the person that she kind of is, but also, I think more so, the person that she wants to be. The picture of herself in her mind that she kind of wants to be, and that she's hoping these jeans will help her be. I know that resonates with you, but I kind of get that. There is a picture of herself, her best self, the self that she wants to be seen as. I'll come back to those two stories in in just a sec. I'm going to mention a couple of philosophers now. One of the most famous philosophers in, in the history of sort of you know, civilized thinking is a philosopher by the name, a French philosopher, Rene Descartes, and Descartes said that very famously. He said that the famous phrase, "I think, therefore I am." It was one of the most important phrases that, that came out and thought ideas that came out through the Enlightenment. And what it, basically he's saying is this: Look, because I I know I exist, I have identity, and I am a person because I think. I can think about myself in a way that a dog and a cat and so forth don't think about themselves. I think, therefore, I know that I am. And it was a really important shift in the history of thinking because it kind of moved away from this idea that who I am is based on what everyone else thinks of me or or, or what a God thinks of me. Who I am is, is basically I think, therefore, I am. Identity is found in who I am mention another philosopher to you. It comes a little bit later. His name is Heidegger. Now, Heidegger comes along and he says, you know what? That's not quite right. It is true that if we stop and think about ourselves, yeah, we kind of know we exist, and I'm a thinking person. I'm unaware that I exist. But he comes along and says, you know what? That's not how we live in life. We don't sit back in life and just think about life. He says we actually experience life. What he meant was this, this morning I got out of bed, I didn't sort of get out of bed and then just stand there and just think about breakfast. You know what I mean? And analyse it in my mind. I got out of bed and I made breakfast and I ate it. I didn't think about it too much. How did I decide what to do? I basically just did what I wanted. I ate what I felt like eating. And that's what Heidegger says. He says, we go through life, not just we're not really thinking about things, we're basically living in things, experiencing things. When we, when we, when we go to a concert, you know, we don't think about music, ah, oh, there's music. We feel the music, we, we dance to the music, we tap our toe, we experience the music. When we go to a film, we, think, we don't sit and think about a film, we listen to the film, we laugh in the film, we cry in the film, we absorb the film, we get caught up in the story. We swim in life, we experience life, we don't just think about life. That's not how life works. We do stop and think about things on occasion, but we have to have to think about something, and mostly it's something we're thinking about that we've experienced ourselves. We walk through life swimming in experiences of breakfast and of movies and of films and of study and of worship and of conferences and of talks and of coffee. This is how we experience life. And Heidegger says this is very important to understand because it means we're never really objective about life. Very rarely are we sitting back from life and looking at life happening. Most of the time, we're just sort of making millions of decisions every day based on our desires. And another thinker, James K.A. Smith, comes along and he says, you know what, that's right, mostly human beings, we're not thinking animals thinking beings, we're actually desiring beings. Most of the decisions that we make in life, most of the choices that we enact aren't based on sort of just thinking about things, they're actually based on our desires, what we want. In fact, he goes further and says, you could say really that essentially at heart we are longing and loving beings. We move through life making decisions based on our desires and our longings. That's what we do. We choose jobs based on what we want to do. We choose what we eat based on what we feel like eating. We hang out with people based on the people we want to relate to. Our desires at core, we're desiring beings and feeling beings and longing beings and loving beings. And a huge amount of the things that we do, we do because we want to be Loved, And our desires are shaped by wanting to be loved. And he goes a step further and he says, so what shapes our desires? Because we all want different things. What shapes our desires and our loves and our longings? And he says, basically, it's a vision in our head of the good life. It's a vision that every person has in their mind of what they wish life was. And time and again, so many of our decisions are generally about kind of building and trying to orient and to a place where we can experience and become more like that good life in our mind. It's kind of the kingdom of Tim. This kingdom, this place where Tim has great tight jeans, and looks like Morrissey. That so many of the desires and longings we have actually are really us shaping the choices we're making so that we can get to that place. And friends, I want to say that that's, not only I think is that happening, that's true, but I think that marketers know this incredibly well. That essentially marketing and advertising and our culture around about us is nurturing that and continually putting up in front of us a vision of the good life, continually giving us images and pictures of a world that we're supposed to idealize and long for and aspire to and want. And by and large, you know what? They succeed. They succeed. That beauty looks like this, and that you need to look like this. You see, this girl who is in the shopping center with me as we're going around looking for jeans, we're not walking around in a bubble just coming up with ourselves. We're walking through a shopping center. And walking through a shopping center is a discipleship experience. Not in Jesus, it's a cultural discipleship experience. Walking through a shopping centre means that at every turn you are being given images and photographs of people who look a particular way, forever speaking out and calling to you saying, this is what it means to be happy, this is what it means to live the good life, this is what it means to belong, this is what it means to have friends, this is what it means to be beautiful. And it comes wave after wave after wave as we walk around. And then right in front of us, underneath these pictures, are the means by which you're going to achieve that. If you just had this, you'd be happy. If you just had that, you'd be happy. These pair of jeans, this is what's going to get you to the good life. This haircut, this is what's going to get you to the good life. This experience, if you were able to travel here, then you'd be the kind of person who can travel and can do things and it's cool. Our culture is forever actually discipling us. It's discipling us because it's nurturing within us desires for a particular version of good life. Now, I want to stop here for a bit of a brain break and I want you to talk to the person next to you just for a minute and say what does the good life look like according to our culture living in South Australia at the moment in the culture that we live in 2015 what does our culture say is the good life describe it to one another what are the values of our culture you got a minute take some time and talk about it and then we'll come back All righty. Let's hear a few of them across the room. What are some of the ways, what are some of the the, the descriptions of our culture and its vision of the good life? What does it look like? Just call them out. Fitness. Yeah, can you give us a little bit more on that? So there's a high value on, you will be a, a disciplined, fit person. Absolutely, that's right. And yeah, that's exactly right. What else? Sorry, a bit louder. Comfort. Yeah, how so? Yeah, yeah, okay. So there's, a, there's an assumption that you should be working your way towards a place where, where things are comfortable. So last night, those of you here last night, I talked about how Jesus sometimes leads you to places that are uncomfortable and challenging. Our culture says, are you, are you nuts? No way. No way. You would need to work towards being, having enough money, being content, you know, all that sort of stuff. What else? On experiences, yeah. Some more info about that. That's right. So you, when you, you sit around with folks and a lot of time I get myself caught in conversations and people just going around talking, listing off where they've been. And there's a certain status, well, I've been to here, even before when I was telling my story in New York, and it's like, oh, he's been to New York, you know what I mean? And then you list off, I've been here, and I've been here, and I've been here, and I've been here, and it becomes like this ticking off of stuff you've done. And in fact, it's really interesting, because we're very experience-oriented, as, and there's philosophical reasons for why we're that way, so many of our products now are talked about as being great experiences. So you should choose this school, not because of the education you'll get, but because of the experience of going to that school or to that college. Or you should buy this product because the experience of driving in the car is amazing or the experience of where. So we're very, that's right, experience to having, having experienced something is like what life's about, accumulating as many as possible. Yeah, and what, and what is, let's talk about that a little bit more. very well put, you said, making that love story work for you. So, there's a a couple of, there's actually, there's quite a bit in what you've just said there. One is that there is a default assumption that you should find the perfect partner and that's absolutely, if you don't do that, then you're some sort of, you know, strange abnormally you need to find that perfect person that doesn't sit well so much with paul who says you know what i might you know don't get married you may, you may, you know that actually the gift of singleness is a wonderful thing and he had it in jesus you know what i mean that actually having an amazing romantic relationship actually isn't the whole purpose of life it can be a wonderful part of life but it doesn't you know what i mean not necessarily for everyone so he values highly singleness our culture says are you nuts you don't want to be left on the shelf now there's another there's another side to what you said as well and that is that it's very much wrapped up in romantic terms that having romance, which is primarily about feelings. Romantic love, of course, is a total myth. Romantic love is, is hardly love at all. In fact, it's quite selfish. Romantic love, in the end, dies. That's a whole other talk. <laughs> it's replaced by something more deep and profound and long-lasting. It's a deep, sacrificial, covenantal love. It's the kind of love God imitates, the kind of love that I'm, I'm happy to say I feel from my wife after 13 years of marriage. Take that over romantic love any day. Any day of the week. Deeply passionate. not romantic. That, so this this myth that these feelings, particular things, and primarily it's about me. Find someone who meets my needs, who makes me feel good. That's how we frame love. Whereas love is actually the very opposite of worrying about me. Love is about someone else. Anyway, that's a whole other talk. But three great points inside your comments. All these myths, they actually exist in our culture, and they actually, it's almost like we just can absorb them if we don't stop. So, hang on a second, what's that film saying? What's the assumption behind that advertisement? Anything else? (laughs) Social media. absolutely absolutely so there's a there's a culture of social media being present on social media and putting a particular version of yourself then this is a really helpful comment because you see on social media very easily what our version of the good life is because we will only put up on social media a particular picture of ourselves that meets what the culture says is the good life does that make sense we put up there something we know is going to be acceptable to the culture. We put a version of ourselves, that's not an accurate version of ourselves, it's a version of ourselves that the culture goes, yeah, so having a great time, met this famous person, here I am having a great experience, here I am buying this, here I am, does that make sense? Not here I am, lonely, <laughs> not, not doing anything, does that make sense? Here I am from a bad angle. <laughs> it's not going to work, because culture in our bad angles doesn't work. So, you know, is that, a, is that my bad angle, by the way? <laughs> so, social media is a way in which we can identify it, but this culture of you need to be there, you need to be presenting something to yourself. I was talking to a young person the other day, she says, you know what, if I don't put something on Instagram, like, for 24 hours, I start to feel a bit anxious, like, you know, I'm not keeping up with people's expectations. I think that's, that's a really strange phenomenon needing to feed the machine, needing to cut it out. There's nothing necessarily wrong but I'm saying you need to unpack it. Our culture presents a particular vision of the good life and it cultivates our desires so we actually long and desire to meet that good life, to participate, to fulfill those particular values and live alongside of them. It's a shorthand way of saying our culture is already discipling us. We're not sitting back and making thinking decisions. We're actually buying and choosing and behaving and acting in ways that kind of goes with the current of how our culture goes. There's another philosopher, last one I mentioned, I promise, apart from Jesus, I'll get to him in a minute. This guy is called uh, René Girard. Now, Girard died about a month ago, which was really sad, a lovely old man, very clear thinker. And Girard basically said this, he talked about desires as well. He said, these desires that we have within us, the desire for the good life, he says they're basically mimetic. What does mimetic mean? It means imitate. He says all of our desires, they're not original desires. They're mimetic desires. What does he mean? He says this, get this, this may be a little bit harsh, but it's true. The only desires you have are the desires you're imitating from other people. He says the desires that we have for something we get because we're imitating someone else desiring it. We walk through and we choose a pair of jeans because we like those pair of jeans. Actually, he says it's more a case of, well, you are imitating other people desiring these genes. Other people are saying, these are great genes for you. I mean, there might be these three types this season, and you may choose that one, but that's not you choosing genes. That's you imitating what are desirable genes at the moment. A huge amount of our desires and the behaviours and the choices that we make in our life, we're making them because we're seeing other people making them and we want to be like them. And René Girard says all our desires are mimetic, we're imitating all of our desires that come within the things that we do and the flow and the millions of choices that we make, we're making them because we we see other people making them and we want what they've got or we want to be like them. I didn't choose the haircut because it's a great haircut, I chose the haircut because it's Morrissey's haircut. I'm not saying I want to look like Tim with a great haircut, I'm actually saying I want to look like Morrissey. Does that make sense? I'm not choosing a great haircut for Tim, I'm choosing to be like Morrissey. I want to imitate Morrissey in the hair department. Now, if you really think about it, and this can be a little bit shocking, and you sort of put it, you're going, hang on, am I really making any choices like at all? This college course, I want to be this kind of person, I want to choose to be this when I grow up, I want to buy this, I want to live in this house, I want this car. At root, to some degree, those desires probably come from imitating other people's desires for them, or the culture as a whole saying, this is a desirable thing. And this can be profoundly challenging to us because at the heart we actually want to be an original person. We like to think of ourselves as an authentic person, as an original person, a person with our own sense of identity and things that we want. And I want to say you are absolutely created to be that person. But there's only one way to embrace and live out being that person. and that's to imitate one person in particular. That's to imitate God. Friends, because God is the only one it's safe to imitate. René Girard says, every time you imitate someone and what they desire, he says, you're putting yourself into a violent relationship, a conflict relationship. He says, because what happens is you want to be like that person or you want what that person wants, which means you're competing with that person. Now, this is a bit of a philosophical idea, but if you get it, it's really profound. He says, so what that means is we're basically, by all desiring similar things in the culture, we're putting ourselves in competition with one another. And you know this happens, and girls, you probably know this a little bit more in the world of fashion. You want something because you want to wear it because you think it looks good, but actually you want it because you know it's desirable to other people. What does that mean? You get to wear it to impress them. What are you doing when you impress someone? You're not loving them. And and even though they may be impressed, being impressed isn't loving you. Being Being impressive is an act of power. It's actually putting someone saying, I am When you impress someone, you don't draw them closer, you push them away. If someone's impressed, they feel even more distant from you. It's so strange because we think the way to draw people close to us, to get them to like us and to be close to us, is to impress them. Hey, look what I'm wearing. Hey, I'm wearing something that's great, or I'm doing this, or I've been on this experience, or I've bought this now. And when people go, oh, that's great. And we think that, hey, that's great, is them loving us, but it's not. It's them stepping back from us. Friends, our culture is nurturing us and discipling us to desire a similar vision of the good life, but in doing so, it's bringing us into a competition with one another and we just get pulled further and further away. It's competitive. He says it's actually violent. There is only one with whom it is safe to imitate, God says, imitate me, imitate me, be like me. Now, why is it safe to imitate God and not imitate Morrissey? Why is it safe to do that? I'll tell you why. C.S. Lewis puts it so clearly and so carefully. Sorry, I said I wouldn't mention one more philosopher. He's not really a philosopher, but anyway, he's there. I'll I'll forget about Jesus and we'll just concentrate on C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says this, He says, it is when I go to God and give myself over to His personality that I first begin to have a personality of my own. He says, God holds our personalities. We were created to desire God and to be loved by God and to be known by God. And whenever we turn away and trying to be a special, unique kind of person and define ourselves, we just go with the culture. And he says, look at history, all the tyrants of history, they're all just so pathetically similar. But he says, then you look at the saints and they're so gloriously freely themselves and diverse. If you want a unique personality, if you want to be free and truly be yourself, if you don't want to be a slave to the culture and the liturgy it's making you sit through and live through every day, there's only one place to go, and that's to go to God. Because you go to God and you give yourself over to God and you finally, do the more you become like God, the more you become like yourself. God works in your life like salt. I think I've heard that before somewhere. You know what salt does on food? Imagine if you get a salt shaker and you open up the salt shaker and you put it in your hand you go, wow, this is really full-on salty. And then what if you're told, you know what people do? They put salt all over their food. You go, well, that's crazy. Putting salt all over the food is just going to make everything taste like salt. But we know it doesn't work that way. Salt has this mysterious power. Where salt doesn't make things salty, with the right level, salt actually brings out the flavor of food. A roast tastes pretty good, but with a bit of salt on it, it tastes amazing. Soup finds its own glorious. The flavor of food goes and becomes itself when salt's all over it. Salt brings out the flavors. And friends, this is what the Holy Spirit does in your life. This is what Jesus will do. You go to Jesus, He will not make you like everyone else. He will actually work in your life like salt and bring out the uniqueness of yourself. Do not kid yourself that you can do this apart from God. You will go with the culture every single time. And the only way to resist the culture, the only way to move against the culture and not be an imitator of the world around us, going after some version, this mythical land of the kingdom of Tim, this mythical good life that basically is just a version of every other vanilla life around us in our culture, is to actually die to that and say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go to God. I want to give myself over to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want Him to flavor my life. I give up control. I don't want a kingdom of Tim. I want the kingdom of God. I want to dwell in the kingdom of God, and I want God's kingdom to dwell in me. That's actually what it means to be a disciple. To make a decision to allow the Spirit of God to disciple your life is a profound. Found resistance against the world discipling your life. It is discipling you already and I want to invite you to be discipled by Jesus instead who actually follows through on his advertising <laughs> who actually allows you to become the you that you can't be on your own The fruit of the Spirit in your life, the Bible says, is love and joy and peace and patience and and long-suffering self-control. Friends, those are things you can't do on your own. You can't bring them about no matter how hard you shop or how hard you try or how hard you beat yourself up or how hard you work out at the gym. You will not be a more patient and loving and kind and joyous. It just will not happen. But these things are there. They are your true self and they will come about as the Holy Spirit works in your life. Let me come to my last point, and that is this. How do you get God to do that? Well, friends, you need to develop a different picture in your mind of the good life. See, the good life, if left to my own devices, is a place where I look like Morrissey, and I have tight jeans, and I'm pretty cool. But there is another good life. And it's a good life actually that Jesus describes and he calls it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And basically the Gospels, all of Jesus' teaching is not law, it's basically a painting, a picture of life inside the kingdom of God. Jesus paints this beautiful picture. He says to us, he comes and he says, "This this is the prayer that I have for you. He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. What he's basically saying is, he's saying, go to God and desire and ask for his kingdom to come in your life and in your world. Start desiring God's good life. Start desiring that world, because that is a magical and beautiful and marvelous and glorious and heavenly place. We actually need to replace a vision of the good life. And the vision of the good life is in our culture, where it is a place of of, of comfort and security and financial happiness and so forth, there's actually a different vision in the kingdom. And it can include the fact that you are so confident you can bear times of profound discomfort, which as I mentioned before, and costliness. But actually it's broader, because it's not just you being comforted, it's actually the poor as a whole being comforted. It's not you having a fantastic house, it's those who are homeless, all having a house together. It's not just you having a marvellous meal in this restaurant and taking a photo of it and Instagramming it, it's those who are starving around the world, eating and celebrating together. He gives this, he paints the image of a wedding banquet, where the people go out to the highways and byways and brought in. The kingdom of God is a party, it's a marvellous party, but it's not just a little party for you where people are sniggering about what other people are wearing around the room, or impressed by what they're doing, or exchanging stories on where they've travelled. But it's a place of celebration that we're just so thrilled to be together and to be here now. There's a sense of gratitude. Friends, there is a profound difference between living a life of gratitude and ingratitude. A life that says, I want to have everything to impress other people and a life that says, I can't believe what I have. God, thank you for what I have. You will hold things lighter when you belong to God. You'll be thrilled at ordinary things around you when you live in God's kingdom. Friends, the way to to do this is to become obsessed with God's vision of the good life. It's right there. It's all the way through the Gospels. Read through it and see how Jesus behaves. See how marvellous He is. See how He stops when a person who is forgotten here, a woman with with bleeding issues, He stops and gives her dignity. Wow, that's the sort of stuff that happens in the Kingdom of God, where Jesus doesn't rush for important people but wants to hang out with people who are broken, who are embarrassing, who are ordinary. It's marvellous where Jesus is actually willing, it's not just even poor people, it's rich people who are poor. He goes, in their heart, he goes into the house of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, who's been this guy who's rich and, you know, he's so insecure and chevering this money, he spends a meal with Jesus and he just can't, oh, everything is turned upside down. He's finally free to, free to give. You don't get financial freedom by getting, you get financial freedom by having the confidence to give and share it around. Read the stories of Jesus, become obsessed with the person of Jesus, look to imitate Jesus, look to imitate God, be like Him. I want you, and this is our prayer, actually one person put it so beautifully, a guy called Don Carson, he wrote a book on prayer, he says, prayer is crying for the kingdom, that's what prayer is. We come to God and each day and we pray and we come together and we pray and we say, God, help me to want your kingdom. Bring your kind of life into my life. Give me a vision of your kingdom in the good life. Inoculate me against the vision of the myths, the images that our world will put in front of us and become obsessed with Jesus. That's at heart what discipleship is. We are desiring beings. We desire, that's how we live. We swim in the world shaped by our desires and discipleship is about directing your desires. Direct them to Jesus and his vision and his kingdom. Be enamored with Jesus, not just as a model and a pattern, but with gratitude for what he has done for you. Here he is, serving and washing the feet of his disciples, these ordinary guys. That's God. Wow, Lord, help me today to do that at work. Help me to wash the feet. My very last point, I promise, is this. This is not primarily about grand gestures. It happens in big moments and grand gestures, but it primarily happens in little moments. habits of our life. James K. Smith talks about this and he says, primarily, he says, we have the disposition of our subconscious, the orientation of our life is not shaped by big decisions that we make about our life. Big decisions are important, but there's not many of them. It's primarily about the decisions that we make in a few seconds, many times every day. I'll be the one that goes and sits next to that person and has lunch. I will in this conversation not just talk about myself, but I will seek to listen first because the hardest thing to see in our life is someone who listens to you. I will be the listener in this conversation. I'll be oriented around that person. That little decision in that conversation is shaping your life. It's changing your disposition. It's making you more like Jesus and it's freeing you from the culture of this world. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit is working in your life, speaking and whispering to you, giving you the strength and the reminder to make that decision in that moment. I will give that money to that person rather than buying for myself. I will not buy yet another of these because I don't need it or or want it. I don't need I can leave. Why am I even at the shopping centre? Why is this a place to spend time I have enough. Those decisions, you are undermining the culture. You are starting a revolution in your life against a world that just wants to push you and flow down a river until you've spent and made and experienced and you're exhausted and alone at the other end. Come to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Make those decisions and live a truly radical life become obsessed and oriented by his kingdom. It's a glorious place. It is a good life. And friends, our longing and our cry is that Westbourne Park and Mitcham and Adelaide would be more and more like the kingdom of God. That's his plan. That's what he's bringing and heralding. Friends, get in it. Get wet. Get messy. Get busy. Be part of that end for God has called you to do nothing less than that. Do not sell out on a comfortable suburban life. Live for the poor. Live for the things that Jesus loves, the things that he says are already blessed, and allow the power of God to orient your life as you imitate him. Let me pray. Father God, I just pray now that you would move by your Holy Spirit These are dangerous words as we start to speak upon the power of the gospel to shape our life. But Lord, I would pray that you would become the foundation, the seat of confidence within the hearts and in the lives of every young person, every old person, every person in this room. Moved by your Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. Politics will not do it for us. Fashions will not, they will not do it. Only the power of your Holy Spirit in the seat of our heart and shift and change our life and free us it is for freedom that you have set us free loving god moved by your spirit make us your disciples participants in your kingdom a glorious and a joyful place in jesus name i pray amen let's stand and let's sing together